Room, episode 150 for October the 2nd, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from the land of fall and pumpkins, even though it was 89 degrees Fahrenheit today <clears throat> in Oklahoma City, where I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. And I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Jason Neifer, known really as the complete guru of all ed tech north of the Oklahoma-Kansas line. So <laughs> if you just go north, then you're going to be, you know, Jason is is your guy. So, Jason, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm thinking it wasn't 89 degrees in Missoula today. It was not. And, in fact, this morning I went out to the car, and it's frost season here in Missoula, Montana, and I have to wait for the car to warm up and go out and scrape. But I wanted to note that Brownie, Montana, which is in uh, northern, north-central Montana, it's on the Blackfoot Indian Reservation, received four feet of snow over the weekend. So we had a bizarre early snow season. In fact, it snowed all day on Monday. I'm sorry, on Sunday in Missoula, but it was so warm and it stuck. So um, my dad, who's in Great Falls, the city I grew up in, also north central Montana, it was nine degrees there on Sunday night. So yeah, winter's here, and it's funny that we're kind of buckling down. A, a, a kid of one of my friends on Facebook uh, uh, said something that her mom quoted on Facebook that you know Friday was on a fall this year in Montana. So we, we got that season for like 24 hours. And the sad part about that is that fall is beautiful in Montana. I mean, all the seasons are pretty great here, but fall is particularly beautiful. And, um, the trees are just dying or the leaves are just falling off. There's no beautiful colors. There's none of that, especially in central and Eastern Montana, but yes, not the season we were hoping for, but Wes, we're not here to talk about the weather, are we? You know, we could, uh, but no, we're actually going to talk about, I think, some technology news. So generally, we will look at the past week's technology news through an educational lens. And I do see we've got three live viewers. So whether you're joining us from Facebook Live or YouTube Live, we want to welcome you and also encourage you to share your comments. Uh, you can comment on Facebook underneath this video, and we'll see those comments or in our YouTube chat room. We can also share those and give those voice, and we want to direct everyone to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, where you will see a list that shall grow by at least a few more that I didn't have time to drop in before tonight's show, and we will be publishing all of the resource links that we talk about, as well as sometimes a few more on our website following the show. So where shall we begin tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, I think we would be remiss if we didn't give the same attention to our good friends at Microsoft that we've given Google and Apple in previous announcements. And there was a lot of interesting things in today's Microsoft service event. And so we have a variety of articles. I want to talk about um, because I know the pervasiveness in Windows across schools. Some interesting things have been happening uh, in that ecosphere, and so let's let's start there. So um, I, and of course, I just got yelled at for having an ad blocker. Uh, Therot.com, which is one of my favorite places to go for Windows news. Paul Therot, longtime Microsoft uh, uh, a journalist, and also someone who has a fairly um, uh, balanced take on, on things. Uh, Throt.com pr- produced a list today, and so I don't know quite where to start here other than, than to say there is uh, new Surfaces out, the Surface Pro 7, um, which is sticking what, what Throt.com calls a the classic and outdated design, but 
There is a new Surface Pro. That's the tablet convertible thingy that's got the clip-on keyboard that's very popular. I know a lot of schools that have widely adopted Surface Pros as a hardware platform. A couple in Montana in particular have gone that route. There's a new Surface Pro 7. Um, the Surface Laptop, which the first two generations of were very exciting uh, for a lot in the Microsoft community. They've moved away from the design of the earlier Surface Pro laptops. They had kind of a interesting, I thought very beautiful, but it looked like it could be kind of grimy, especially in student hands. There was a funky material that they put onto around the keyboard, and there's a name for it. It's, it's going to call it melamine, but that's something else completely, I think. But um, the uh, Alicantara was the previous material. They've moved to an all-metal design, which I think is very Apple-esque, right? So there's a, a new Surface Pro 3, and there's a 15-inch Surface Pro, th- or Surface Laptop 3, excuse me, that is intended for power users. Um, for example, we use 15-inch laptops at work for our Windows users um, at the Digital Academy that are, you know, on the computer all day long. But that's not the interesting stuff that came out today. The more interesting stuff is that Microsoft has doubled down um, on a, a couple of different really interesting designs. So the first one um, that... I can't really talk about in much detail because this is a, um, a holiday 2020 thing. It's called the Surface Neo, and it is a dual-screen Surface device. And it looks like, from my understanding, and admittedly I only had about 20 minutes to dig through the, the news on this tonight, I think it's it's like the Lenovo design that has a virtual keyboard on a glass screen that you can type on, and then it also can convert to different things. So it gives a dual screen experience. And it's interesting that Microsoft decided to announce actually two different uh, uh, interesting devices today that would not be available until holiday 2020. So we're, you know, 13 months away from seeing probably, uh, the release of these devices, but it's powered by a new version of Windows. It's called Windows 10X. It has two nine inch displays. So this is a smaller tablet like experience. And Windows 10X is intended for, f- for folding devices. So it has interesting wow. pieces in there that go to devices that have multiple screens and can be one screen or two screens, depending on how it works. I can't really speak to whether or not this would be a, an educationally relevant device because anytime I see a device with two screens on it, I just think that's twice the number of screens that can break in, you know, fumbly adolescent hands. But very interesting. A lot of innovation there and dual screen devices have never really caught on to this point, but obviously there is something interesting in that piece. So let me just stop there, Wes. Anything tempting your fancy as a Mac user that I will abandon the Apple universe to pick up a dual screen Microsoft Surface laptop? To give a long answer, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just, I'm not at, I'm not at all really enticed. I, the only thing with Microsoft that really gets me excited is their signage in their store. You know, it's amazing. I want to have that in my classroom. It goes all the way around and somehow they've, you know, figured out how to, you know, use some, uh, great software, which I don't think runs on straight up windows, but who knows? Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the folding stuff, right? And I'm fascinated by a new operating system because this is one of the biggest things that Microsoft needs is to abandon the old code base and be able to, right. you know, get a more secure code base. So is Windows 10X 
a layer on top of Windows? Is this a new from scratch version? Like, what is it? My understanding is that it is a new version of Windows 10 that is built for these dual screen folding devices. And I've seen it described as stripped down. So I'm presuming that it would be what they had tried with Windows 10 S a few years back, which was that you could run applications only from the Microsoft store. And that ecosystem wasn't very developed, which didn't quite do Windows 10 S, just made a very limited implementation. Um, I would presume that if they're going to go in this direction and, and the next two devices, if, if that sounded interesting, are going to go blow your, blow your mind a little bit. But this notion that, you know, it's a limited implementation operating system, I would assume also comes with Microsoft pushing developers to make the Windows Store a more relevant store. And the bottom line is that the App Store on the Mac OS and um, Chrome, which you know has Android apps available now, and the 2 million Android apps are installable on Chromebooks, that's a very different ecosystem, right? Now, that said, now that I've gone all Chrome OS, I could see it in a world where the uh, Edge browser is built on top of a Chrome interface that has the multiple profiles, the thing I value very much in the, the Chrome operating system and the Chrome browser. I could probably get away with Windows 10 S as a, a power user, but we'll have to see what X looks like. So uh, two other interesting releases today that uh, I, I think are, 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 are pretty interesting. The Surface Pro X is a new Surface tablet. It abandons a lot of the uh, kind of design, older design that the Pro 7 uh, is available on. So that, but it's a super thin, um, it kind of looks like an iPad actually. It's a super thin tablet. It's 13 inches. It has an extremely high resolution display with 267 uh, dots per inch. And it's incredibly thin. It's it's 5.3 millimeters, and it's only 740 grams. So that's a, a very, very thin and light device. But it runs Windows, and I think it's going to be running Windows at 10X, but it's on an ARM processor. So this is the first Microsoft device since they tried to move away from this with the original surfaces that runs full Windows, but on an ARM processor. And that's the same processor that powers my um, cell phone. It is the somewhat the same design language of Apple's processors in the iPad and in the iPhone. But the idea is these are highly efficient processors that have low battery life. I'm sorry, high battery life low heat creation and are quite powerful, but have never really worked within the Windows architecture to this point. So the early renderings look beautiful. I know that there were apparently some of these these uh, Pro um, X Surface tablets running around the announcement today in New York. I've not seen any of these videos yet, but it looks like, well, I mean, it looks like an iPad, which I, I'm going to use as a compliment here. So very thin device and has the tight cover and could very well be that device. Is that tempting at all to you, Dr. Fryer? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and they're going to have to get the app ecosystem too, right? Yeah, I, it was a absolutely. year or so ago when Google at the, at the Google IO event, you know, announced these new sleek tablets and these new devices, but um, you know, it's, it's more than just that screen and, you know, Battery life and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it, it is about the, the app ecosystem and those kind of capabilities. Uh, on a related note, you know, here's what week 
this is week one and a half into week and a, one and a half with the iPhone 11 Pro. And, um, man, it is amazing to have the same size of screen as my seven plus, right. <clears throat> but a much smaller form factor. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I kind of feel like the foldable phones and that stuff is a little bit like throwing, you know, throwing stuff against the wall. When you get invested in an ecosystem, I mean, Hey, my uncle actually shout out to Ron Henley. He thought I had gone Android fully and he didn't realize that was a nine month experiment because I went to Egypt and I was kind of paranoid and, and it was good. I learned a lot, but I'm, you know, the Apple watch now with, with the used series three from the summer, which you can now actually buy as, as, as inexpensively as I got new from Apple um, and the ecosystem. It's just, it's going to take, I don't, I don't think I'm going to get this lodged from the Apple ecosystem. So that is something that Microsoft and, and Google and Huawei, as we may talk about with some articles in the show have to contend with, you know, is that, um, you know, once you're invested in an ecosystem, uh, it's a it's a big shift, and it's not just you know being being a um, I don't know. There's there's the, there's the cult of Mac and the fan fanboy base and all that. And I've anyway, there's 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 trouble sometimes when we you know just get excited at the latest thing. We don't always have to have that gadget, but when you are invested in the ecosystem, you've got multiple devices working together. You know, flashy, flashy and new can come out. But similarly with schools, you know, we become invested in a platform. Our users are familiar with a platform. It takes a lot to dislodge, um, you know, an organization and an enterprise. I think Microsoft right. still has a long way to go trying to create that Google Chrome experience. And I'll mention something in my Geek of the Week about the Google, about Chrome and, you know, Google Console and, and things like that. It's just, it's it's a it's a big complex puzzle that's that's more than new devices. So I'll say I'm glad to see Microsoft continuing to work at innovating, and I'm particularly interested in the next generation operating system because you know Mac and Apple have really led the way with iOS, with the App Store, with the way in which things can be securely sandboxed and you know devices can can be protected against this. Crazy, malicious, insecure, and and hostile world that we have right. out there with computing, yep. and so I know that um, you know Microsoft is wanting to <clears throat> reinvent itself as well. So, welcome well, to Rhonda. Have one. Okay, welcome to real quick Rhonda, Peggy, and uh, Shannon who are out there, and uh, yeah, Shannon is saying he's loving his iPhone 11. So I haven't met anybody yet that was ready to toss it aside and say. Yeah. And what in is, fact, what is um, this trash? Yeah, Mike on my staff purchased the iPhone 10, or I'm sorry, iPhone 11 Pro, um, and absolutely loves it. And the camera, and I actually, I, I did a chance to, to play with it a little bit today. I like the heft of it, actually. I don't really like super light electronics, and I like how that feels in the hand. So, and the last one is, so you mentioned foldables, right? And, uh, we, we haven't talked about this since the, it was first released, but Samsung has kind of led the way in foldables because they've created a, uh, apparently they've re-released the Samsung fold, but it's a, a it's, it's a basically two screens. There's an outside screen, there's a larger inside screen that you open like a book, and the first versions of it were terrible and stopped working after a couple of days. Well, Microsoft's jumping into this uh, a chasm, I guess, would be a way to describe it, but they are releasing 
an Android phone holiday 2020. And um, they're taking an interesting tact because the phone itself is not a single screen. It's two screens facing one another. And it's interesting because they're building kind of a Microsoft ecosystem on top of Android, which is, you know, perfectly fine in the, in the Android universe. But uh, there's an article that mentions this today, but it seems like bizarrely, Microsoft has cast its fortunes with Google tools. And so now Google is underneath its its browser, right? That the Edge is or Edge browsers moving towards the Chromium base, which is developed as an open source project by Google. They're now building a phone on top of Android. I presume it will be an Android phone, right? Which means it's going to have the Play Store in it and downloadable of the two million apps in that ecosystem. But this device, it looks like a little tiny Surface laptop. It's got the metal outside on it that has a little Microsoft logo on it. It looks like a tiny, tiny, um, surface laptop, but, uh, it's a foldable phone and it has two 5.6 inches screens, which means it turns into an 8.3 inch device when unfolded. Um, it looks like that they're not really intending this to be a larger screen, but it's two screens in essence. So you can have, uh, uh, something going on on one screen and a separate app on another, which is a little bit interesting to me. And there was no word about price today. And since it's, you know, a year and, and a few months away from release, this is at best a, um, uh, uh, an experiment that we may or it could be vaporware, right? It could disappear, but it's a long ways away. But it's a, you know, foldable screen with a hinge on it that uh, is apparently some kind of releasable uh, a phone. So super interesting. There's been a long rumor about a Surface phone. Uh, at first, it was maybe a successor to Windows Phone before that ecosystem died. Uh, now it's over Android. Uh, Microsoft has been making deals with, with Android phone makers like Samsung to release more Microsoft-centered phones but they seem to be going all in on the Android ecosphere. So I'm assuming this is a $1,000, $1,200, $1,500 product. Not, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an Android guy and not particularly interested in that. I know you're not going to be interested in that, Wes. I don't honestly know who the market for this is, unless right. you are so steeped in the Microsoft universe that you have to have all the new stuff. But you know, I agree with you earlier, they are attempting to innovate in this space. If you're a Microsoft employee prohibited from using an iPhone, as I think, you know, at one point employees at Red, in Redmond were, you know, that may be an option for you. I, I want to segue this to a Huawei article that talks about installing, installing Google apps. But as we often do, <clears throat> take articles and kind of do the educational lens. I've sometimes reflected on this. So I want to toss the question to you, Jason. How does this matter for the students that are in our schools, for classrooms, what we're continuing to see with the, you know, continued innovation? We've got these super expensive, very powerful phones. Um, how does this impact education in schools? And, and what do you see as the educational take on these, you know, new latest announcements? Well, I, see, I have a different take on this because I don't think this is going to make it into a lot of students' hands, right? And I, uh, unfortunately, I left the classroom right before phones became, uh, uh, smartphones became a daily reality for kids. In fact, when I, when I took an administrative position, it was right after the iPad was released, right? So I have not had an opportunity to teach other than at the university environment. But this is something that I've, I, I, I talk with some parents about quite a bit of, of preteens and teens that are moving to 
their first cell phone. I think that's one of the, the problems with this notion that your phone can do everything or that these super powerful phones, they're not in the hands of, of most kids in a classroom, right? They're, people aren't going out and buying, you know, $1,400 phones for their kids. They're buying the middle range um, uh, uh, Android phone. They're buying an older version of an iPhone, a 6, 6S, 7, 7S. And in fact, that is my, my whole family's moving over with me to T-Mobile this weekend. I'm having to play phone shuffle because I have uh, two parents and two in-laws that uh, we're working with to, to move everyone over to T-Mobile and everyone has slightly different needs. And in the face of having to purchase brand new phones, because other than my phone, which I update about every year or 18 months or so, everyone's on four or five-year-old devices. And the financial outlay of buying a newer phone is, is, is a little complicated. And so um, I, I, I'm shocked, actually, when I start to think about it, you know, 30 years ago, this notion that everyone would have a computer and everyone would be using a computer seemed ridiculous to the non-geeky crowd. But the cheap phones are good enough right, to be able to be quite productive, creative, communicative with other folks. And it's it's an interesting world we live in, that literally the, the computer is in everyone's pocket now, and that's not science fiction, that's today. And I'd say one of my ahas this week, thinking about media literacy and computer literacy, which I'm teaching to our fifth and sixth graders, we are so out of pace with what, where we need to be in terms of courses and instruction in school. You know, we give kids or make them take an English class every year. We should be in media and, and, and digital literacy every year. I mean, literacy has changed so much. The power of the technology, being able to effectively search the web, discern, you know, credibility, uh, source, all of that stuff, man, it is just so vital. Um, and while that kind of thing needs to make it into the mainstream curriculum as well and be integrated. Yeah, I think there's a lot of implications around cell phones and the ways in which we access and share information. And, of course, we're in a political environment, too. So, uh, yeah, there's there's that. Well, I want to segue to a quick Huawei article, and then I want to talk about a New York Times article this weekend that just it's it's so dark and bad. that I, I'd prefer not even to talk about it, but it's one of these things we we need to. And I think actually there's an advocacy agenda that goes with it. But the first article is. Um, uh, talking about the um, Huawei phone, and I put it on, in our links under Google, and uh, this is from uh, Ars Technica on October 2nd, the Internet's horrifying new method for installing Google apps on Huawei phones. And as listeners to the podcast may recall, we've we've talked at length in past shows about this fight and battle happening between Huawei and the United States government. Um, the fact that the U.S. government doesn't want not only uh, Huawei phones to be sold, but is very concerned about Huawei, which is a Chinese owned company that's owner started in the Chinese military with the outlay and, and build out of 5G networks worldwide, <clears throat> the United States is trying to stop all countries, uh, not very successfully, by the way, from purchasing and, and installing their technology because part of the fear, uh, and of course we're not in the intelligence community and we haven't seen classified things about this, you know, is that there are switches that can be flipped uh, to allow, let's say, the Chinese government to be able to have all of this data, you know, that's going over their devices, et cetera. So anyway, now... <clears throat> Uh, Google is stopping Huawei from being able to uh, run Android. 
And so the implications of that is Huawei is having to and has created its own operating system to run on its phones. And Huawei phones, by the way, when you listen to the This Week in Tech Twit podcasts or talk to somebody, I mean, there's folks who have these phones. They're, they're amazing. They're very powerful. And so now if you go to this website that's referenced <clears throat> in this article, it's really just a few taps. But what you do on your end, on your Huawei phone is you have installed a mobile device manager like we use at school to manage our fleet of, of iPads. And you have allowed a Chinese server, which you don't really even know where that is or who controls it, to be the administrative control for your phone. But with just a few taps, all the Google apps that you're used to having in Android suddenly appear on your phone. So to the naive user, this might seem fantastic because here's Google Drive, here's Google Docs, here's <clears throat> you know Google Slides, all my stuff. But what else have you installed on your device and who have you given administrative root level access to your device? This is a really big thing, it's a bad thing and I think that one of the media literacy skills that we need to be teaching not only students, but parents, adults, everybody, is to be really, really wary when you click and authorize an app or a soft or, you know, a website or something to have access to your device. Uh, we saw this with, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the ways in which folks were able to, hey, let me take a Harry Potter quiz. Am I Gryffindor or Slytherin? You know, sure, you can have access to my contacts. Yes, you can have access to my uh, friend network on Facebook and these permissions and it's just a real wild west. So uh, I don't know. What do you think, Jason? Are you ready to buy a Huawei phone and allow some kind of unknown Chinese server to to have root level access to your device? Does that does that sound like a great idea? I'm going to vote no on that one. But I think the other piece that's so interesting about that is that the, the website referred to in that article is down or it's not available from the United States. And it could be that uh, that somehow the, the the tariff something, something, something has prevented that right, but I just looked, uh, it, it read part of the article and and looked at you know there, there's references that this particular website's referred to with a bunch of Google searches about how to install pieces on there, and that's it. Kind of goes back to that. It's bizarre to me that we're in an era where you can't grab a phone and install what you want, right? Like that's the part that uh, that that's so interesting to me is that we are really locked into an ecosystem where we rely on the manufacturer of the software or hardware of our phone to provide us an experience and you can't hack that yourself. It relates to another article I want to talk about when we're done here about about some some freeing up of the Apple ecosystem on particularly older iOS devices, but there it it's it it's interesting that we're we're to a point where that a mainstream device like a phone, you can purchase it and then it can stop working because the software is not allowed by inner, by, 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 by federal law. Right. And, you know, that's probably a safety is a safety thing. Right. I am. I, I, I have stopped installing um, apps that I don't know the source of. I don't download alternative app stores, which is one of the big advantages of Android over iOS is that you're not stuck into the single app store. But we are in an era where a lot of things are controlled by third parties that you in particular don't have any control over. So um, I've never had the opportunity to own a Huawei phone. Um, it is a brand name that's extremely common uh, outside of the United States. It's dominant in Central and Western Europe. 
it's dominant in Central America. In fact, when I had the opportunity to um, uh, take a look at the uh, phones at a Walmart in Costa Rica when I was there for Thanksgiving last year, the Huawei phones were the dominant brand name in the, the uh, Costa Rican Walmart that I was in. And that's an environment where you're more likely to purchase a phone in a retail store than in a cell phone store because uh, they're more of a SIM card culture, which is not something that says, uh, uh, popular in the United States and Canada, but uh, yeah, super interesting. And you know, the one thing I will say is that even if it's super sketchy, people will find ways around those types of restrictions. Now, I want to segue a little bit, and then I want to go back to your to the New York Times article, Wes. But uh, there was a piece of interesting Apple news this week. The Verge reported on September 27th that there is a new what is being described as unpatchable iPhone exploit that could allow for something called jailbreaking permanently. And uh, jailbreaking is a hacker strategy for taking your iPhone or iPad and uh, jailbreaking it. That means you can install alternative application stores. Um, I, I believe that Cinda, which was the original super popular app store, has been shut down. So I'm sure there's other means that stepped in to, to, to um, uh, do that. But essentially, it allows way more control over your device and the opportunity to install applications that aren't available in the uh, uh, app store for iOS and jailbreak is common, right? Like almost every version of iOS has a jailbreaking strategy. Sometimes they're really silly strategies that only work until you reboot your phone. Sometimes they have to be plugged into a PC or a Mac via a USB cable or it stops working the jailbreak. But the fact that, that every Apple device from, I think it's the 4S to the iPhone 10 or iPhone X is a jailbreakable now does create some interesting possibilities for those like the hack. Wes, have you ever jailbroken an iPhone before? So I guess I can admit this. You know, I actually wrote posts on my blog under an alias, which my mom didn't like. Who is this? Uh, Sherman Nicodemus at one point because I was, you know, you just weren't supposed to do that. Uh, yeah. And I've had some, you know, formal relationships with Apple in the past and things like that. So, yes, I mean, in the early days, I did it because I wanted to be able to mirror my screen on my yeah. uh, laptop to teach people and show. And you had to jailbreak your device. That's before AirPlay and all that happened. <clears throat> I also wanted to be able to tether my device so that when, you know, we're traveling or, or, or I'm away, um, I could use my cellular data on my laptop and, and you had to jailbreak to do that. So I have done that. Th that's been years ago I've, I've you know I've changed my ways actually you know iOS has just matured and those functions are now available as core parts of the of the OS but that was an example where the avant-garde you know kind of features you know re required that so yes I have haven't done it in a long time um, it also is dangerous right just like yeah. rooting your Android device you open yourself up to the possibility of having un you know, vetted, uh, malicious software <clears throat> that can not only mess up your device, but it can, you know, allow hackers to steal your data, to steal your identity, to get your bank account, your credit cards, yada, yada, yada. So I have a little bit of experience with it, but I'm not doing it anymore. And I don't, I don't, I don't recommend it. You know, I, I think there's very, very few folks. Certainly we have white hat hackers, right? That are using their hacking skills for good and not for evil. <clears throat> and so we need just like, 
literally soldiers on the you know front lines physically of um, you know our security of our borders, protecting the borders. We we need people who are knowledgeable about those things. But right. I don't think the average consumer needs to be messing with that stuff. And I've no articles to share this week, although it's been pretty prolific in the Android media. But uh, there are are many, 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 many apps that have been identified in the last six weeks that are sketchy apps that that appeared in the Play Store. And something happened to me this week, and it's never happened before. Um, the Play Store sent me a notification saying that we've identified an app on your phone that, based on the description of the situation, could be used in a botnet attack. So, in other words, that there was a backdoor in the app that would allow it to, from some uh, external location, uh, uh, tell my phone to start attacking a website or get in the middle of, of, of something to be disruptive to the Internet. It happened to be an app I downloaded looking for a more professional ringtone from my phone because I that's actually something that I, I feel like is not super great on any of the, the devices that most ringtones are kind of silly. I'm looking for something subtle and professional for my, my phone, which, you know, is with me uh, during the workday. But uh, it not only, you know, told me to uninstall the app, it wouldn't allow me to install the app again. This was a mainstream millions of install app that that offers uh, ringtones and wallpapers, right, which is uh, the, exactly the kind of app that you would think is innocuous, but as it turns out, could be kind of sketchy. So interesting that happened to me, and that's, that's new. So, Wes, let's go back to your New York Times article. All right. Well, this fits in a category of an article that I think every adult needs to read, and this is an expose. It's also a case study of why we need quality and we need to be willing as a society, as individual journalism. We talk, talked about that at different times of the show. We mentioned it last week. So the article um, is talking about uh, images of child sexual abuse. So this is the New York Times, September 28th, 2019. Um, the full title is The Internet is Overrun with Images of Sexual Abuse, What Went Wrong? And so to summarize the article, you know, like we've seen exponential growth in some other areas of technology. Unfortunately, we have seen exponential growth in the proliferation of images and videos of things that are frankly just too horrific to mention. Um, this article does mention uh, a lot of different things. And I promise you, um, you don't even want to know that people do these things and these things happen. What is there's a lot of tragic things about this. Number one, the U.S. government is not fully funding even what we have committed to in legislation to do to try to, uh, you know, have police action to uh, stop these people, to put them in jail. Um, there's a quotation there that based off of statistics in the state of New Jersey alone, they think they could probably just go out and arrest 400,000 people right now just based off of the number of images, the kinds of images that are on websites. Um, the things that people are doing, the ways they are requiring people to be actively contributing. I mean, we're absolutely living in an extremely dark age. My wife has reminded me because she's I guess heard and read articles about this, you know, sex trafficking is at astronomical levels here in Oklahoma city. We live at the junction of I 35 and I 40, which are two major interstate corridors in the United States. And, and as a result, there's all kinds of things as well as people that traverse these interstates. And I've often thought, you know, to be a highway patrolman uh, and not knowing what you're going to be facing on a stop uh, is just crazy. We've got some nonprofits that are here trying to stop uh, sex trafficking. Sometimes when you go into a roadside, you know, bathroom, um, there'll be signs in the um, 
you know, in, in the, in the stalls or in the bathrooms, uh, you know, that are, that are advertising to people who are trapped in the sex trade. And it's kind of like an underground railroad to try to help get these people out. So anyway, the advocacy agenda is, uh, and I think I am going to do this. I'm going to contact my representatives and my senators because we need to fully fund our law enforcement agencies that are charged with trying to deal with this. In the article, there one of the per- people who's quoted basically says, well, we just hope machine learning and AI can save us because there's no way people can you know, filter this and be able to catch people. We, we, we've got to have more powerful algorithms to do this. <clears throat> the other personal layer I'll say to this is our middle daughter, who's now started uh, college at the University of Central Oklahoma after taking a gap year, is studying digital forensics. Uh, and, and, and so forensic science. And you have to have five. There's one of five specializations that you have to choose. And she's chosen digital forensics. It's a, a five-year program. And so she was able to visit in the last week or so uh, with a, a person who serves in the Edmond Police Department. And Edmond is a community to the north of Oklahoma City where our family goes to church and where we used to live before we moved into the city. And anyway, um, you know, the the darkness that is there and the kinds of things they have to see. I mean, I have friends from the Air Force Academy that are graduates that have been militarily retired, not because they actually kicked down doors and had M-16s and shot people, but because they were intelligence officers that repeatedly saw images of what happened when our special operations teams went into all these places in Iraq and Fallujah and Baghdad and these places. And, and so <clears throat> the impact of seeing horrific images of violence uh, and and just things you don't even want to think about is real and the costs are real. And so I'm thinking about this on a lot of different levels, but I want to commend the article to folks. I want to say that this is an important topic. Like it says that some representatives uh, and elected officials, they just, they don't want to talk about this because it's so dark and it's so bad. And having been someone that has done a lot of talking about Internet safety, I still will. I think I'm going to be doing presentations not only at our church here later in the month, but also at a school across the street. Um, and then at, at our school, too, talking about, I think the, the I put this in as an ISTE presentation, but it's, you know, why grandma got fished, you know, digital safety 101. I mean, how can you avoid being a victim? Um, we need to talk about this and advocate for law enforcement. And we live in a day, like it or not, with a smartphone where it is a seek and find world. So if somebody wants to go out and try and find something, um, they can. And the same encryption technologies which protect dissidents in, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia or uh, Kuwait or China or North Korea, perhaps. I don't, know. I don't know if they can get online in North Korea. But anyway, in countries where uh, free, freedom of expression is highly suppressed, those same encryption technologies enable criminals to be able to, you know, maintain secrecy. And some of these networks, they train other pedophiles how to remain anonymous and avoid law enforcement. And And the quantity of what's happening is just, it is absolutely staggering. So, uh, probably the most troubling article maybe I've ever read, uh, which is saying a lot because I've read a lot of articles and a lot of things that touch on Internet safety. And so I just commend that to people. And I think we need to to talk about it and also talk about what we're going to do about it, because we really shouldn't put our heads in the sand. Uh, this stuff is real. It is not just affecting the communities across the country. This is something that's affecting every community. 
And this is something we have a moral responsibility as adults, as educators, as parents, as citizens. We need to be supporting our law enforcement officials. We need to be protecting our children. I don't think we need to like throw away our phones and just cancel the internet, right? We can be overreacting to all this. But at the same time, we need to have open eyes to see the ways in which these tools are being used in extremely malicious, hurtful, and nefarious ways. And as a society, we need to face up to our responsibilities to try and ameliorate, deal with all of that. Your thoughts, Dr. Neifer? Um, I just echo what you say, and I do think that uh, it's a good advocacy point. Um, I maybe read, you know, a fourth of it as you were speaking. I feel a little traumatized, actually, but um, I, I, I agree. I, the one of the one of the headline points here is that this is the reason why we still need journalism in 2019. This is an untold story. Um, the statistics alone are incredibly disturbing and uh, worthy of action and. Um, I would also echo that this is not an opportunity to panic. It's an opportunity to be clear eyed and take action. Right. And if, uh, if what the article is saying, uh, is, is, is true and I have no reason why it isn't, then this is an opportunity to fund something that could make real change for, um, uh, for real people. So, uh, you know, it, it's the good with the bad, right? Like the part of what the, and I, I, I appreciate that you put this under our, our broad heading of tech correction, like as we're figuring out how these technologies work and how we learn to be more human with them, these are exactly the kind of highlights that we need to take action on to make sure that, um, that, that the technology is not used in a way that, that hurts us as humans. One little addition I'll pull out. Um, the article, I, I listened to most of it on Pocket. And if you don't use Pocket on whatever device you have, it's awesome. And it, and it says 23 minutes, right? So to read or have the phone read it to you, it's, it's a long article. It's a long read. Yeah. <clears throat> but it talks about Tumblr and what a, what a terrible environment that has been for years and how even some of their policies would actually notify the people like, Hey, we let the government know we let, we let authorities know that you have inappropriate images, giving them time to destroy it, to hide their identities. Um, we need some regulatory uh, enforcement in this area because the, the platforms, it talks of course about Snapchat. <clears throat> it's just such a wild west Law enforcement is so outgunned and completely overwhelmed, and then they don't even have the regulatory uh, authority in, in many cases to force these platforms to, you know, produce information in a timely way and maybe in a confidential way so that they can take action and go, you know, seize things and arrest people. And I think that, yeah, the the agenda around this, I know EFF is really big on privacy, and I really support that. But the Center for, uh, I think, Exploited Children is one of the ones mentioned here. I think we ought to um, identify, and if folks who are in our chat room or if you want to reach out to Jason or I, let us know, you know, the kinds of, of organizations, probably nonprofits that are advocating in this space. I mean, that's yeah. really how our voices get amplified to make change. It's not just a couple guys getting together on a podcast, you know, talking on over YouTube and Facebook. It's It's when we get together and we organize that, you know, we're able to affect change together. And so there are groups that are working this issue and they're pushing. And I think we need to highlight what those are. We need to encourage others through our social media uh, connections and face to face connections to support those organizations, because it's really those organizations and the combined voice that's 
that's going to have an impact. So I think we've got to go to some more positive technology topics. This can get pretty dark. So yeah. take us, take us, uh, take us up, take us out of, of this uh, into some, some better territory, Jason. Sure. So let's talk about some Google news and I, there's a lot of things here and we're not going to have time to get in too deeply into a cut into them, but the one I want to absolutely talk about, uh, this week, because I think this is an action item that everyone should take. Uh, Google has announced a new tool that allows you to check to see if your passwords are compromised. And I need to, full disclosure, this assumes that you are a Google browser user and you have saved passwords as part of your strategy in the Google browser, right? So as an example of this, I use the Google password saver. I also use LastPass. It's my password saving strategy. But uh, uh, it de facto, I end up usually having both installed, right? And so there is a an amazing new tool. It's the Google Password Manager, passwords.google.com. That's not new, but there's now a new functionality on there called Password Checkup. You click on Check Passwords. It goes through your entire library of passwords, and it checks it versus databases of uh, scammed passwords. There's billions and billions of accounts that have been compromised and appear on hacker databases available largely on the dark web, but it's taken those databases and it compares your password to release passwords and it identifies areas that could be at risk. And I saw this released, I heard about it, and then saw it today. I went on to all my uh, uh, Google accounts today and used the password checkup, and I found about 25 sites that my password, my secure password, had appeared in a database somewhere, three of which were important things. One had to do with a credit monitoring service I utilize. Another one was a stock uh, 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 program that I use for investments. And I went immediately and changed those to super secure passwords and save them via LastPass, but an amazing tool. And thanks to Google, I think this is a smart move on their part. Um, but the password checker from Google is an extraordinary new tool. What, what about your cryptocurrencies, though, Jason? I mean, I know oh, you've made millions on Bitcoin. Right. Has, has that password been compromised? Uh, sadly, um, uh, uh, it, 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 it was compromised, and all my Bitcoin has gone away. So I no longer have gazillions of dollars in Bitcoin. Um, I was surprised, however, that some some accounts I've not used in a very long time um, were the password was saved in Google. I hadn't remembered that. And I haven't really checked that list lately. It did identify several duplicated passwords. Uh, in some cases, I was quite comfortable with that. But I will say that I know my account was in a compromised database and the people have been, and not, not me targeted, but I, uh, a couple weeks ago signed into Grammarly, which is a, a great tool. So, so great that I actually pay for Grammarly Pro. It's not cheap, but I do enough writing in my job and I write enough emails that I like to have an extra check on grammar and spelling. And I couldn't get my Grammarly account a couple weeks back. And so I didn't think of anything at first. And then finally, I uh, reset my password. And I went into Grammarly and saw there were six documents in Grammarly that weren't mine. Uh, they were someone else's. And I think someone had signed into my account, had changed the password and probably sold my account to someone else. 
Um, you can go on to uh, eBay right now and buy scammed Grammarly accounts. It's not uh, it's not hidden at all to do that, and that really encouraged me to go and 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 go on kind of a tirade to change all my passwords. And this tool gave me the last few bits of things that were compromised passwords. And you know, it's it's a 21st century digital literacy skill, but passwords are are here to stay. Uh, biometrics are not quite where they need to be yet, and so uh, use this tool. Fantastic. That is optional. That is the tip of, uh, you know, not just this, this episode, but probably probably multiple ones. Um, well, we are getting a little close to the top of the hour. We will try to conclude uh, close to the top. Um, let's try to just uh, hit a few articles, kind of kind of quick shots here. Uh, one more tech correction article. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security. This is the, the headline is finally going after white supremacists. That won't be simple. Uh, this is a September 23rd article from Defense One, uh, which is a, uh, a pretty good source that I uh, find a, a lot of things, you know, kind of military uh, defense industry relating. And it talks about the El Paso shooting and uh, the ways in which, um, you know, shootings have caused our Department of Homeland Security to. Uh, you know, expand the, the the concept of terrorism, you know, beyond just what's happening in foreign shores and, and the ways in which uh, individuals and actions, you know, constitute domestic terrorism here. Uh, so anyway, I think it is positive to see, but it's also, of course, challenging in terms of the identification of, you know, who are white supremacists, what should, you know, how, how can they be identified, um, you know, what, what can we do with, with domestic terrorism, et cetera, uh, but I put that under the, the tech correction headline. Um, one other thing that relates, and I put this under privacy, uh, is uh, this Fast Company article from October 1st. Andrew Yang proposes that your digital data be considered personal property. If you're not familiar, Andrew Yang is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, I think a millionaire, who is running for president of the United States under, with the Democratic Party. Uh, we're not a political show, but a lot of times articles are going to you know, crisscross into our political realm. And I, I'm personally excited about this, right? We've talked on the show about surveillance capitalism. Uh, that is a concept that you, you know, Google, and Facebook uh, and Amazon as well and, and the major tech companies are harvesting literally millions and even maybe billions of dollars of value and data. We're giving it up. We, we don't have really any rights to see what they're doing, uh, to be able to, to, to say what that, how that data can be used, et cetera. Uh, we've talked about the European law, the GDPR previously. And the implications that that's having, uh, I know, you know, we, we always mention, you know, we're nervous when regulation comes up, but, you know, regulation is what has allowed the platforms to uh, grow and to exist as they do. And we've got, you know, lots of innovation, but at the same time, um, we've always needed regulation. In fact, I think politically, that's one of the most important things that we could do would be to help have a, a healthy perspective on how we need to be able to regulate you know, both corporate behavior, human behavior. I mean, we, we don't want people to just be free to do whatever they want uh, and let, you know, the mafia and, and criminal elements and, and you know, whoever wants. Let, let them run the world. So anyway, I think that is a very exciting thing to have put out as a political talking point. It's the first time I've heard a major candidate talk about that. I don't know where that's going to go, but I'm encouraged by it. So any thoughts on those or do you want to hit a couple other articles quickly? Jason. 
Uh, a couple of uh, quick hits from from the Google stuff. Uh, the Pixel 4 is likely to be announced in, in two weeks at the Google event, uh, their fall event. And there's a lot of talk around the new Google Recorder, which is an app that will be available on the Pixel 4. No data yet whether it will be available on other phones or perhaps uh, older Pixel phones like my Pixel 3a. But it is a live recording and transcribing uh, device that allows you to, in real time, transcribe not on the internet, but on the phone itself. And although it's a very simple app right now, there's a lot of people supposing that at some point this could mean also live language transcriptions, right? So you, it, it, it can... Star, Star Trek, basically. Yeah, yeah basically, right? Universal communicator that would allow you to record someone in another language in real time and translate that to another language. And that is some real next-level stuff, right? That's pretty impressive. And as someone that likes to travel internationally, that unfortunately is a uni file, uni speaker, whatever, just being a, a, a simple English language speaker, I'm thrilled by the notion. And I hope this app ends up being as cool in the future as it appears to be. And then there's a lot of interesting stuff in the last week about Internet of Things and Amazon's announcements last week that we covered in some detail uh, in last week's episode. I will save that for a few future episode, but it is interesting that Google and Microsoft and Apple, for that matter, seem to be moving away from the Internet of Things world and Amazon's kind of jumping in there and and, and, and creating or, or, or pushing themselves into that vacuum. And interesting update we can talk about in a future episode. I have decided in the last seven days, based on our conversation last week, Wes, that we're going to go all in on uh, Amazon devices in our house. So oh, we're wow. taking all of our smart switches and everything. We're we're disconnecting them from Google stuff and putting them on the Amazon architecture, which we have plenty of devices in the home to be able to do that. But we already feel like that Amazon is doing a better job of providing us smart home functionality. Yeah. Quick story today with my Apple Watch. I just pressed Siri said, what's the temperature? And it says, what location? I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't know where I am. Go to Google Assistant. You know, what temperature? It tells me right away. Uh, two quick questions from the chat room. Peggy asked, if a data breach happened many years ago, do you still need to change your password? Some of the accounts I don't even have anymore. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if, you've, if you've used that password, never use it again because it's been associated with you. And so folks that create automated systems to try to hack us will use those databases and then try to use a password that you've used with the idea, and this is true for a lot of people, that sometimes we repeat uh, the use of a password. So you do need to make sure you don't ever use a breach password again. And then Dean Mance, and he corrected spelling here a little bit later, uh, asked Jason, if you were talking about a green shield and checkmark extension on uh, Chrome, is that related to the password manager stuff? It is, I think, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, two more, and then we're going to geek of the wicket and get out of here. Uh, I want to mention this for media literacy. So there's big stuff happening in China and in Hong Kong. And so shout out to the, uh, the daily, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's by the New York Times. And this was today on October 2nd. Um, the title is called pageantry in Beijing firebombs in Hong Kong. So we've had 17 straight weeks of protests in Hong Kong 
and we've mentioned this briefly in the show because mainland China wants to assert essentially hegemony and sovereignty over Hong Kong, and they want to be able to extradite and deport folks to the mainland. And and people think, in general, treat Hong Kong really like just another city within the Chinese nation instead of having these special privileges that you know they've had historically after the trans- transfer from Great Britain and part of the British Empire and all that. So what was interesting is China has just had huge celebrations that they've geared up for for months. I mean, they've had high ranking military officers, you know, if they said practicing this marching, you know, for uh, for six months. And they had all these weapons and the pageantry and the show of control and force. And then we just had some of the first protesters shot by police. Um, I honestly think this is going to become another Tiananmen Square incident. Uh, sadly, I don't think the college students in Hong Kong have the mix of factors, for instance, that we had in the United States at the time when we successfully, you know, pulled away from from Great Britain and became an independent nation. I don't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't look good. And from a media literacy standpoint, one of the things that's interesting is the way that China is using imagery and state propaganda to push forward an image and then the way small, uh, organized, but relatively less powerful groups think the youth and the and the college age kids in Hong Kong are are sharing a counter narrative and embarrassing the Chinese government on the world stage and showing that they're not in control. And so anyway, this is really uh, not just interesting, but it's it's hugely important for the lives of millions of people that, that live in China and for the future of democracy and what happens there. So there's also a CNN article that juxtaposes some of those images from October 1st called Hong Kong protesters hit the streets as China marks 70 years of communist rule. So perhaps somebody's going to write a media literacy lesson about that. Uh, I don't really think for my fifth and sixth graders necessarily we're going to be tackling all of that. But I think those are really powerful ways in which imagery uh, is being used. And, and the story of the New York Times reporter who was forced to leave the country because they were concerned about what he might report and the police that came to him and and they forced him to leave uh, and not stay in Beijing. Um Pretty, pretty troubling. So anyway, stuff to check out. Uh, any other articles before we geek of the week it as we are just a couple minutes past the top of the hour, Jason? Yep. Let's, uh, let's end this up. All right. So I'm going to do two quick geeks of the week. Um, this is a post by Richard Byrne. Just fantastic. He just shared, I think either today or yesterday, 10 digital storytelling tools for students of all ages. Uh, one of the things that I introduced my sixth graders to this year was Adobe Spark video. We got that set up free for all of our students to be able to use the Adobe Spark platform, but he's just got a great updated list, uh, ways that Flipgrid has been updated, uh, for, for storytelling, um, documentary video. Videos, virtual reality tours with Google's VR creator, some really great stuff that I want to dive into. And then uh, second of all, I mentioned this earlier, uh, we got to be aware of the limitations of Chrome and updates. And when devices stop getting updates, whether that's your smartphone or that's your laptop or that is, you know, uh, some other kind of, of computer or device, uh, that's a red flag to say, I need to get rid of this because if it cannot be updated for security patches, you really don't need to be running it because it's just vulnerable at that point. So the article that I put in is Google's auto update policy that's in their Google Chrome Enterprise Help. It explains that each new Chrome OS, uh, Chromebook, Chrome device receives six and a half years of updates from Google. But if 
like our school has in the past, you purchase refurbished devices, you're not going to get a full six and a half years of Chrome OS updates. It's only going to be six and a half years from the release of that particular hardware platform. And so one of the things we've been doing at school is taking a look at, you know, do we have devices that have passed out of their update cycle? And that is called the auto update expiration or a AUE date. And so that is an article to check out and something for everybody to be aware of if you happen to be managing a Chromebook fleet at school. Jason, what do you have for us? Well, it's it's a kind of a similar uh, piece there, maybe a little different piece uh, of information, but the Chrome browser, right, been around for 10 or so years, uh, is actually based on Chromium, which is an open source project from Google. And it used to be that if you wanted to install Chromium, it required building it from scratch and doing nerdy things that, that don't have a lot of payoff. But you can actually download the Chromium browser to your Mac, your PC, your Linux box. I have actually have it installed on my Chromebook via some uh, hacker. I have at work, but it is the Chrome browser without essentially the Google services integrated into it. And if you sign into Google, then obviously you're signing into Google. But if you want to uh, uh, utilize the, the fast Chrome experience, not universally accepted, it's the fastest experience, but it's been my general experience that the Chrome is fast and speedy and responsive, but you don't want to have the Google tracking that does come with the Chrome browser. You can download Chromium on your PC, on your Mac, and still utilize that as a browser. And so there's a great article that I'm sharing from Free Code Camp that talks a little bit about the differences between Chromium and Chrome, um, but you don't have to, you know, build into those pieces. So uh, free code camp, chromium.org, I believe is where you can download the versions of chromium that again are Chrome or Google lists. Awesome. And Peggy George is sharing that she has participated in two great digital storytelling webinars with both ISTE and okay to ask. And she has dropped a link in and Peggy, if you don't mind actually either uh, messaging, reply messaging on Twitter or DMing me that, I will include that in our show notes as well. So, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here at the EdTech Situation Room discussing these amazing topics and giving these the wisdom and insight, where can people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, where I frequently share articles that have uh, 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 interested me enough to read through the article. I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Blog.ncc.org is the Tech Savvy Teacher blog. And opening soon is registration for the March 2020 NCC Conference in fabulous Seattle, Washington. And that, I believe, is released in a couple of weeks. Um, in fact, uh we are in the process of releasing those that have made the cut for the conference itself. I'm excited. I'm going to be a part of several presentations, including premiering a couple new presentations. The one I'm most excited about, actually the two I'm most excited about, one of them relates to reclaiming reading literacy as part of digital and blended learning environments. And I also am working on an advanced Chromebookology session that should be a real Chrome hoot. What about you, Wes? Well, I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and my blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I am periodically sharing some things. Um, having my Speed of Creativity podcast every once in a while. I've actually been also posting on Anchor as Class with Dr. Fryer. So <clears throat> if you'd like to tell your smart device, not only, hey, G, hey, Madam A, play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room, you can also say, 
play the latest episode of Class with Dr. Fryer. So we want to let you know that we will be having guests, we anticipate, the next two weeks, still getting some of those details ironed out. If you happen to be a listener of the show and you say, hey, I need to be on the EdTech Situation Room, uh, we could make your dreams come true. So reach out to me on Twitter uh, and uh, we'll we'll chat. So we want to thank everybody, especially the chat room, for joining in, catching us live. If you've not caught us live, you can go to edtechsr.com, where you can find small 32-kilobit audio-only versions, as well as 360p video versions, all archived on the Amazon S3 cloud for your downloading pleasure. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube if you want to see our ugly mugs doing this chat thing, and you can also... Hopefully find us anywhere finer podcasts are curated. So for Jason and Wes, we wish you a very happy fall. Have a safe October. We hope Jason will have some safe travels as he goes about the country, as we said, north of the Kansas line, sharing the ed tech gospel and goodness with folks around the world. But we will have him back in a couple of weeks, but do plan to continue here with some guests the next couple of weeks.